1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Kendall Danine, and today I'm talking with Lee Goodmark about her book, Imperfect Victims, Criminalized Survivors, and the Promise of Abolition Feminism, which was published by the University of California Press in January of this year. Using the stories of individual criminalized survivors of gender-based violence, this book illuminates the ways that the criminal legal system perpetuates violence against the very women, transgender people, and gender nonconforming people it claims to protect. Lee argues that reform is not the answer to this problem and that instead of limiting our efforts and imaginations to the pursuit of reforms that ultimately expand the reach of the criminal legal system, we should invest in abolition feminism and a world of non-carceral supports and resources like housing, health care, and education instead of one that relies upon arrest, prosecution, and incarceration. <clears throat> Professor Goodmark is the Marjorie Cook Professor of Law at the University of Maryland Carey School of Law, where she co-directs the clinical law program and directs that program's gender violence clinic, which she founded. Professor Goodmark also teaches family law, social justice and the law, and gender related courses. Um, I wanna start us off with a quote from the book, which I think will sort of set us up for where the conversation is is ultimately gonna go. Um, So you say, you write on page 185, Abolition is necessarily about building. Without giving people access to the things they need, not only to survive but to thrive, abolition is impossible. That building is not just individual. It must be structural as well, investing in health, education, and safety, creating new and resilient institutions that deliver justice without relying on state violence. Abolition requires a leap of faith. It asks us to reject the carceral system without being ready to plunk an alternative in its place. Welcome to the podcast, Lee. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. I'm really excited about this conversation. Thanks so much for having me. So to get us started, I wanted to begin by asking you about how your thoughts on, on the sort of carceral system, I think, overall, have shifted over time, because this is how you begin the book. And I think, you know, especially like in my own conversations about abolition with people, it can often be difficult to to get them to sort of invest in what that leap might be, and so I think you articulating the shift in your own thoughts, um, maybe from this book to some of your past work, is is really instructive. So if we could if we could start there, I think that'd be great.
1: I came out of law school at 24. I was absolutely what we would now call a carceral feminist, although we didn't have that terminology then. And I use that as a descriptor, although some people see it as an insult. I believed deeply that the carceral system was the way to address intimate partner violence, that these men, and at the time we were only talking about men, were monsters, that the only way to deal with them would be to put them away, that they could not be redeemed or changed in any way. And that was very consistent with the thinking of the anti-violence movement at the time, which was itself deeply invested in carceral solutions through, for example, the Violence Against Women Act. But I started representing clients and those clients said, this isn't good for us. We need our partners for economic support, for co-parenting assistance, because our housing is in their name, because our communities ostracize us, because we love them and we don't particularly want them locked up. And so I started to think differently about the use of the carceral system, and I started to see how it wasn't actually doing the work that it was promising my clients it would do, that it wasn't necessarily keeping them safe, that it wasn't necessarily making them any better off. When I joined academia in 2003, that's where I started my thinking from, was just, this system isn't working right, but we can fix it. And so in my first book, A Troubled Marriage, that's what I tried to do. I tried to say, it's not working, but we could fix it. And by 2018, when I published decriminalizing domestic violence, I was pretty sure we couldn't fix it. Um, decriminalizing domestic violence argues that the criminal legal system is not decreasing or deterring intimate partner violence; that it's not uh, exacerbated, it, that it actually exact- that it actually exacerbates the conditions that lead to intimate partner violence, and that it's had really serious consequences for the people that it was meant to help. But at the end of that book, I say. Decriminalizing domestic violence is unlikely, which I still think is true, and probably unwise. I punted. I still wasn't ready to take that jump to abolition. And then I think two things happened. You know, One, in the summer of 2020, I think many of us who had kind of been on the cusp of, of that general direction finally were able to see, for whatever reason, it's not as though there weren't police murders every day before then and that there haven't been a million of them subsequently. Just in 2020, I think a lot of us saw for the first time that this wasn't a system that could be changed. It wasn't a system that was going to be reformed in any way. And Miriam Kaba's book, We Do This Till We Free Us, really helped me see that I didn't have to have all of the answers for what would happen in a world where there was abolition that it was okay to take that jump without knowing exactly what that system was going to look like on the other side. And I think those were the last two pieces for me that clicked into place. Um, and I always want to pay my dues to all the people whose work I rely on. So Beth Ritchie's work, which I've read you know, for years and years and years, and Andrea Ritchie's work and Angela Davis's work and Miriam's work, um, and the work of the Black women who, from the beginning of the carceral bent in the anti-violence movement, were saying, don't do this. This isn't going to work for us. And it's not at all surprising that so many prominent abolitionists come out of the anti-violence movement because they've seen the damage that intervention by the state can do, even when the state is intending to do its best, let alone its worst.
0: Thank you for that. And I did, I wanted to Talk a little bit about, you know, as you say, there have been all of these, particularly like Black feminist thinkers who have really impacted and sort of helped your um, your thinking sort of transition on this topic. And I noticed that in the beginning of the book, you do what I kind of think of as like a, I think I said in, in my email to you, like an extended citation practice, which to me, I thought was very cool. And so I wonder if you could just talk about that for a moment.
1: I owe that to Alyssa Biaria. Alyssa Bieria read the book in draft and said, you have not done the homework here that you needed to do. That uh, an important part of abolition feminism is naming the people whose work that you're relying on, who have been influential on you in some way. And I really appreciated that. It wasn't something that I had done before. I kind of loved doing it to be able to say, here are all the people who've been doing the work for such a long time and here are all the contributions that they've made. And here's the little piece that I'm adding. I love feeling like part of that community and it was amazing feedback to get. Um, Sometimes as a lawyer, we don't get that kind of training in doing work in that way. It was wonderful to have somebody who's, kind of whose work comes from a different space say, no, no, no. Part of being a good abolition feminist is acknowledging where you come from and not suggesting that somehow you're the first person to have done this work. Certainly wasn't my attention. And I love that it's part of the book
0: now. Yeah, it's I think it's really great. Um, so in the beginning of the book, you also write that you had initially sort of conceived of this project pretty differently um, and that, for reasons sort of outside of your control, you had to pivot into what the book is now, which the book is now, and now as it is now is wonderful. But um, I think your initial idea also is like worth talking about, and and um, you know why you weren't able to pursue that sort of initial idea.
1: I was working with a group of lifers at the Maryland Correctional Institution for Women. Many of them were already my clients or my clinic's clients, and we were looking for a new project to do in this group. We settled on writing a book together. They would write their narratives and I would frame them using the social science research and the law and kind of give some context for their stories. And the warden at the time was supportive, but the Maryland Department of uh, Public Safety and Correctional Services said no. And so I went back to my clients and to the women who were in the group and said, you know, we're not allowed to do this. And they said, we'll do it anyway. We want you to do this anyway. One of the most amazing and gratifying things that has happened has been my client's reactions to this book. Um, I have a client who is texting me as she's reading it and telling me what she's experiencing and how she's feeling. And I have another client whose daughters now think she's famous because she's part of this book. Um, It's been phenomenal to have had their input into what I included and to have them feel like... People are hearing them in the way that they wanted to be heard. That means the world to me. It's not that that other book is completely out of my head, um, although I'm not sure I could pull it off with our incarcerated clients, but you know, we have about 25 clients who've now been released. So maybe someday we'll be able to do it in the way that it was originally conceived.
0: Well, fingers crossed. I would definitely like to read that book as well. <laughs> um, so... I think it would be helpful here, because it's obviously a very important uh, concept of the book, if we can get your sort of definition of like, what do you mean by an imperfect victim? Because this is something that comes up again and again. Um, And how is it that imperfect victims become criminalized survivors?
1: The legal system has a pretty narrow definition of victimhood. So it can only see you as a victim if you are white and straight and cisgender and middle class and <clears throat> meek and weak and passive. You have all of the stereotypes of victimization that we've been taught to look for for so many years. The problem, of course, is that very few people conform to those stereotypes. And so for black women, for example, if you are an angry black woman, you are not a good victim. If you are a strong woman, you are not a good victim. If you have mental health challenges, if you have substance abuse issues, if you have been a sex worker, um, even for white women, if you're not the right kind of white woman, if you are what Evan Stark would call uh, the rough white woman as opposed to the respectable white woman, you're not legible as a victim. And so... What you see happening in the system is that police and prosecutors and others, when confronted with stories of victimization, find ways to say, well, you're not the right kind of victim. You're not a perfect victim you were able to manage your checking account, you ran a business, you fought back in self-defense, therefore you aren't meek and weak, right? So you'll see prosecutors kind of do this thing where they say, well, yeah, I'm all for victims, I am the voice of victims, but you're not really a victim and here's why. That's who the imperfect victims are. They're everybody who doesn't conform to that stereotype and therefore is exposed to punishment by the criminal legal system directly as a result of their own victimization
0: thank you so you know very early on in the book you connect this sort of contemporary moment in which survivors of gender-based violence are criminalized especially for defending themselves um to the case of an enslaved woman named celia in 1855 and this for me i think was like a really powerful connection um and so i wonder if you can if you can draw this out of it
1: Sure. Celia was an enslaved woman. She had been bought by a man named Robert Newsom, and he had been raping her for five years. And she told his daughters, if he comes at me again, I'm going to defend myself. Keep him away from me. And of course, they didn't. And so when he tried to rape her again, and she was about 19 at that time, he had purchased her when she was 14 and had been raping her since that time. Uh, When he came at her again, she killed him. And then she burned his bones in the fireplace and disposed of them the next day. In Missouri at that time, a rape victim was allowed to argue self-defense and was allowed to use force to defend themselves from rape, but the judge refused to give that instruction to the jury because Celia wasn't a person. She was property, and as property, she did not have the right to defend herself, and so not surprisingly, given that she was not entitled to that instruction, and because the judge said, if... Newsom had been used to having intercourse, his words, not mine, with her and expected to do so on that day and she killed him in response, then she was guilty of murder. So again, not surprisingly, Celia was found guilty of murder and she was hanged.
0: Uh, Yeah, I think it's so, it's so, the thing that was so interesting to me about that in part was like thinking about Estelle Friedman's uh, redefining rape and that for so long, not only were you allowed to use force, right, but actually, if you were going to claim that you had been raped, you had to prove that you had, you know, resisted that um, physically in any way possible to you. And so, yeah, I just think that's so such a, a striking sort of facet of our history and our conceptualization of rape, and who can even, you know, uh, be a, a sort of a victim of that crime. So moving on into the 20th century, if we could talk about these series of reforms that you write about in the '70s and '80s that were meant to really deter gender-based violence by making it, you know, ostensibly easier for women to access the criminal legal system, and these reforms were pushed, um, as you write, by a lot of anti-violence advocates who, you know, some of whom now we I think we would recognize, as you said, as carceral feminists. Um, if you could talk actually about that term a, a little bit more and uh, and what it means, I think that would be really helpful. Sure. So a carceral
1: feminist is a feminist who believes that using the carceral power of the state through police and prosecutors and courts and incarceration is not just an appropriate, but a necessary way to address gender-based violence specifically. Um, and it comes very much out of that moment in late seventies, early eighties, where anti-violence feminists coming out of the women's liberation movement and coming out of the, anti- the kind of the successes of the rape reform movement looked around and said, intimate partner violence is a problem. And we believe that the reason it's a problem is because police and prosecutors are failing to intervene. And we believe that we can solve this problem by requiring police and prosecutors to do, to treat intimate partner violence as a crime like any other crime. And so first uh, reformers looked at police and said the problem here is that police are using their discretion not to intervene so if you look at for example the police training manuals of the late 60s you'll see language that says if you go to a scene involving domestic violence don't arrest the guy and at that time we were only talking about guys and generally in marital relationships just tell them to take a walk around the block and cool down but this is a private matter you shouldn't intervene in any way and so in 1979 oregon passed the first mandatory arrest law in the united states Mandatory arrest laws require police to make arrests in cases involving domestic violence any time they have probable cause to do so. So it deprives them of the discretion to tell the guy to take a walk around the block or to not do anything at all. There was research in the early 80s that suggested that arrest could deter intimate partner violence, and kind of looking at that kind of mandatory arrest law coupled with that research, jurisdictions across the country adopted these mandatory arrest laws they had some pretty unintended consequences. After the um, passage of mandatory arrest laws, arrest rates not surprisingly went up, but they went up for one group more than anyone else, and that was women. Research has shown that that wasn't because women had all of a sudden become more violent, but because of the way that police were implementing those laws. And many of the women who were being arrested were in fact survivors of violence um, for various reasons. The reformers then looked at prosecutors and said, well, arrest rates have gone up, but prosecution rates haven't gone up. And prosecutors said, well, the problem is that our star witnesses, the victims, don't want to testify, so we can't bring these cases. A couple of things happened in response to that. One evidence-based prosecution was just the idea that prosecutors should try to bring those cases as kind of like a homicide, as though there was no living victim to be available to testify and to develop their evidence so that they didn't need the victim's testimony. But the other innovation that happened was something called no-drop prosecution, where prosecutors said, as a matter of policy, we are taking these cases forward, whether the victim is interested in participating or not. And in what are called hard, no-drop jurisdictions, what that means is that prosecutors will subpoena victims to testify. If those victims choose not to appear in court pursuant to those subpoenas, that they will ask for courts to issue what are called material witness warrants, which are arrest warrants for witnesses in cases when prosecutors say they can't go forward without that person. And in many jurisdictions, victims of violence have been held in jails pursuant to those material witness warrants, can be held for a day, a week, a month, six months. There is, in most jurisdictions, no limitation on how long a person can be held. Uh, without the rights that criminal defendants get. So no right to come before the court in a certain amount of time, no right to a cash bail. They're often held in the same facilities as the people who've hurt them. And they're treated just like any other incarcerated person. So in Tennessee, there was a kind of a short period of time where a prosecutor named Tony Clark was just using these material witness warrants over and over again. And a woman named Donna Oliver was incarcerated pursuant to one of these warrants. And somehow, um, or the people who were jailing her were not told that she was a victim of violence. She was beaten, she was chemical sprayed, she was bruised. Um, another victim in New Orleans, Renata Singleton, was incarcerated on a material witness warrant, held for five days, and then brought into court shackled, uh, chained to the other people in the orange jumpsuit, as opposed to the person who had broken her cell phone, which was what the case was about, who was released on a very small amount of bail the same day and was never even, he pled guilty, so she her testimony was never even needed. So you see how those reforms directly led to the arrests of the people they were supposed to help um, and to the incarceration of the people they were supposed to help
0: reading about those material witness warrants. There's a lot to be angry about (laughs) in this book, right? But that part I had no idea about prior to reading and my blood was boiling. I just wish everybody knew that this was going on. I think it's so important.
1: Uh, Um, Material witness warrants are my pet peeve. They they are the thing probably process-wise that makes me just the pure angriest.
0: Yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, so maybe we can talk a little bit more about some other ways that criminalized survivors come into contact with the criminal legal system. I know you talk about, you know, the criminal legal system is like uh, promising that this kind of contact or even sometimes mandating the contact, it's going to give survivors access to resources that they can't access otherwise. And this ends up actually putting them in a lot of danger. Um, So yeah, if you you could talk about that a little bit.
1: Sure. So in the context of intimate partner violence, um, just coming in to get a protective order, people end up being incarcerated. So in the book, I tell a story about a woman who came in to get a protective order. Um, that's a restraining order that, in cases of intimate partner violence, is meant to protect the victim from having further contact uh, with the person who's abusing them. And the woman was upset with the judge's ruling, and she slapped a sign on the courtroom wall. And the magistrate had her incarcerated for five days for contempt of court for her belligerence. The same woman came back a year later, I. I'm shocked that she did, but she did, and sought a protective order again, and was in the hallway being told that it was too late for her to come in that day and was very upset by this. The same magistrate went out into the hallway, grabbed her, dragged her back to the courtroom, and at this time incarcerated her for 10 days for contempt of court again for her belligerence. And so just trying to avail herself of the remedy that we have told people will keep them safe led directly to her incarceration. In the context of trafficking, you often see it as kind of the carrot of services being offered using the stick of arrest. So we arrest victims of trafficking because we want to keep them safe from their traffickers, because we want to get them off the streets, and because there are services that we're willing to make available to them, but only if they come into the criminal legal system as defendants. And that may be through a diversion program. um, like the Human Trafficking Intervention Courts in New York City um, and other kinds of programs that have been really abusive across the country in bringing victims into the system. And it the problem is that it still leaves these people with arrest records, which are accessible to the public, accessible to landlords, accessible to employers. Um, And oftentimes, because people have trouble kind of complying with all of the conditions of these programs, they end up criminalized nonetheless. So even if you bring someone into the system in order to rescue them, when they fail to do all the things that you tell them to do, because for whatever reason, um, they fail to do all the things that you tell them to do, they find themselves criminalized nonetheless.
0: So thank you for that. So th- it sounds like there are a lot of ways, you know, that um, these these survivors are criminalized that aren't necessarily about any kind of violence that takes place on their behalf. But of course, sometimes that is the case that a survivor has used violence. And so, could you talk a little bit about like what some of the reasons are that people um, who are experiencing gender-based violence might end up using violence for which you know they're later criminalized? The traditional
1: kind of picture of the criminalized survivor is the battered woman who fights back against her partner. Um, I'm dating myself, but like think Farrah Fawcett in the burning bed. Um, and that's kind of the the core image that people have of a criminalized survivor. And that absolutely still happens. Very recently, Tracy McCarter in New York was arrested um, for the death of her abusive ex husband on a night when he came to her house drunk and was threatening her. Um, so that obviously still happens. But there are so many other ways that people come into the system as well. So people commit acts of violence at the behest of, under the coercion of, under duress from their partners. Uh, in the book, I write about my client, Tanisha Williams, who was a sex worker who landed in the apartment of a guy named Patrick Martin, Um, Mr. Martin had planned to traffic her. And when she said no, he essentially turned her into a household servant, made her take care of his house, take care of his children. She didn't want to go back to living in cars, so she thought she could ride it out until she had enough money that she could get away from him. But one night, Mr. Martin was having um, an interaction with a guy named Kevin Amos, and punched him and then pistol whipped him until he lost consciousness. Uh, Mr. Martin had a gun around all the time. Ms. Williams was terrified of him. And after he rendered Mr. Amos unconscious, told Ms. Williams to tape his mouth, Mr. Amos's mouth and nose. She screamed and he grabbed her. He thrust her into the drywall so hard that it actually cracked the drywall on the wall and then put his arm across her throat and blocked her airway, then let her drop to the floor and told her, you get up or you lay down. And what she understood that to mean was you do what I told you to do or I'm going to kill you too. And so she did tape his mouth and nose shut. Um, She went to police seven years later because the case had gone cold and she felt like she owed that to Mr. Amos and his family to give them closure and thought that because she had been forced to do what she had done, that anyone would understand that. And of course, the problem is the duress is not a defense to homicide. And so even though the prosecutor reluctantly conceded during her trial that she had, in fact, acted under duress. That was not sufficient, and so she is serving a 20 to 40-year sentence in the Michigan Department of Corrections. And then, you know, people come in because they self-medicate, so that, again, they're criminalized for things directly related to their victimization. People self-medicate to deal with violence all the time and then are uh, arrested for the use of drugs. Um, We have clients who have been convicted of sex trafficking who were themselves being sex trafficked and because they were being trafficked alongside other women and did things like hold money for them or help them to try to have safe working conditions or because they were what's sometimes called the bottom girl in a sex trafficking organization who is doing a lot of the logistical work under the direct control of their trafficker, sometimes also an intimate partner they are held responsible for trafficking just in the same way that the actual trafficker is. Um, so lots of ways that people come into the system.
0: And it's not just adults, right? You, you your, your, uh, chapter, your first chapter is titled youth. And it, it really gets into, uh, I think you say, um, on page 25 that youth criminalization or excuse me, criminalization of survival begins with girls and transgender and gender non-conforming youths. Um, and you have quite a quite a, a host of statistics that show really significant increases in incarceration of of children since the 1980s. Um, could you talk about that a little bit? Um, I, I was struck by how this uptake in incarceration of children has been explained and legitimized by the media versus um, an explanation called upcriming that's coming from like legal scholars.
1: Right, so in the media you see descriptions of girls gone wild um, and this idea that all of a sudden girls have become absolutely uncontrollable they're doing all kinds of criminal things that they had never done before but what researchers say is actually happening is that we are criminalizing all kinds of things that we never criminalized before. And so things like running away become criminal offenses. And um, things that used to be called what are called status offenses have become criminalized in some ways. That So we're holding kids in juvenile detention for things that we were never holding them for before. And we're also punishing kids for involvement in uh, sex work, even though by definition, any sex work that's done by a kid is considered trafficking. So the federal definition of trafficking is if you are under the age of 18 and you're doing sex work, you are being trafficked. Um, And yet kids who are engaged in survival sex, kids who are engaged in sex work at the kind of under the control of traffickers, um, Are not seen as victims. They are seen as people who are volitionally choosing to do sex work, and police and prosecutors have a really hard time distinguishing between kids and sex workers, and they can't see that somebody could be both of those things at the same time, right, and be trafficked um, as a kid. So there are things that were never criminal before that are bringing people into the system. Uh, Mandatory arrest actually is responsible for bringing a significant number of girls into the system. Uh, Rates of juvenile detention among girls increase significantly in places where there are mandatory arrest laws. And in part that's because it's easier to remove a girl from the home than it is to remove the parent who she's probably fighting with. So Imagine police get called to the scene of a crime, and it's a girl and her mom who are fighting, and the mom says, she's completely out of control, and the girl says, she hit me, and I was defending myself. But the police officer sees that the mom has three other kids at home. Much easier to just pull this girl out of the house than to figure out what I'm gonna do with all those other kids and all of this other mess. Um, and so we've seen significant numbers of girls come into the system in that way as well. And the problem is for these kids is that if they're acting in ways that aren't considered girlish or ladylike for young girls particularly, um, if they're sexual in any way, if they're loud, if they're angry, if they're aggressive, then they don't get the benefits of being seen as a girl or as a victim, right? So they're kind of doubly targeted in that way. And then for trans and gender nonconforming youth, You know, rates of abuse of those kids are so high, Uh, so many kids who get kicked out of their homes and are engaging in survival sex or other kinds of things just to get by day to day, and really no understanding of them as victims at all.
0: And you talk about, you know, and I don't think this is surprising, but there are like wildly disproportionate sort of rates of detention and incarceration of black girls, girls of color, and as you just spoke to, you know, trans and gender nonconforming children, Um, And this seems to have a lot to do with sort of like gender norms and performance. But I was wondering if you could talk about that just a little bit.
1: Going back to our definition of a perfect victim, right? A perfect victim is white. And so if you want to be legible as a victim and you are a person of color, particularly if you're a black woman or a black girl, you already start out with skepticism about your claims. You already start out, you know, with this kind of strike against you, I guess, in this way. Um, And that carries from girlhood through to adulthood. Those numbers are similarly inflated for kids, for adults as they are for kids. Um, Couple that with anything that looks less than compliant with gender stereotyping, right? So race in and of itself is already one hit. And then if you act in any way that's considered deviant, again, if you have mental health issues, substance abuse issues, if you're doing sex work, all the things that we talked about earlier that's just stacking the odds even further against you in terms of your ability to be seen by the criminal legal system as victimized in any way. Um, And so not surprising that huge numbers of um, Black women and Black girls in the system, um, not surprising uh, about Latina women and girls as well and Native women and girls as well, just kind of all the racism that's in the rest of the criminal legal system is very much in this space as well.
0: Thank you. Um, So moving on, I think, into Chapter 3, you quote um, Angela Davis as saying that, quote, prosecutors are the most powerful officials in the criminal justice system, end quote. Can you explain why this is?
1: Yes, that's Angela Davis, the law professor, um, who who is an icon in her own right and is amazingly awesome, but a different Angela Davis. Prosecutors are, in fact, the most powerful people in the system. Prosecutors get to decide who's gonna be charged, what they're gonna be charged with, if they're gonna be charged with something with a significant mandatory minimum sentence, which can dictate all kinds of things in the future of that case. They get to decide what witnesses are gonna be called, who they're gonna have testify before a grand jury or in a preliminary hearing, what information they're gonna disclose in those proceedings, whether they're going to agree to bail or fight bail, whether they're gonna offer a plea, They can even tie judges hands by the charges that they press, because if they select charges with um, long mandatory minimum sentences, judges don't have any discretion to depart from those mandatory sentences. So no one has more power in the
0: criminal legal system than prosecutors do. Thank you. Um, And so you bring up this, 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 Really interesting thing that I don't think I thought of, but it makes like total intuitive sense um, that the perception really shifts uh, about a victim who is going through this process of like prosecution once they've been found guilty. um, The way that they're sort of conceived of and seen shifts pretty dramatically and that this has a real impact on sentencing. So you write that if the victim was believed or found credible during trial, once they've been convicted and moved on to sentencing, they are officially a criminal and no longer like credible. Um, So how does this, you know, obviously this has an impact on sentencing. What does that kind of look like?
1: I would say that the switch flips earlier, in fact. So I think for prosecutors, once someone becomes a criminal defendant, they're no longer seen as credible. They're no longer seen as a victim. And prosecutors will do everything in their power to distinguish them from a real victim. Um, But certainly, once they've been found guilty then there's been an assessment of their victimization claim. And that assessment is we don't believe you for whatever reason, or it's not sufficient to overcome other things in the case. And once that happens, it has a profound impact on everything that happens thereafter. At sentencing, you see judges say, you're not a real victim. Jury didn't believe it. I don't believe it. Um, I talk about the case of Nikki Adamando, who, um, Was convicted in New York of killing her abusive partner. And the judge just kind of very blatantly says, you, you had other choices. You didn't have to kill this guy. You're not a victim. I don't believe you. You could have done a hundred other things. And sentences her to, you know, a ridiculously long sentence, even though there's a, a law in New York that would have allowed him to depart from the long mandatory minimum sentence in her case. He chose not to use it because he simply didn't believe her. Um, and that is pretty routine. And that carries through not just sentencing, but anything that happens post sentencing in the parole process, in the commutation process. You know, We do a lot of the work that we do in my clinic is parole work, and we have to be really careful in negotiating how we talk about somebody's experience of victimization. It can't be an excuse, and for most of my clients, it isn't an excuse. They don't try to use it as an excuse. It is an explanation. It is a context for understanding what happened to them. But even that is really fraught because that sentence, that finding of guilt, is an assessment that we don't believe you, we don't believe that you were actually a victim. And so to try to then reclaim that status in parole, in other kinds of clemency proceedings, is really difficult.
0: Thank you for clarifying that. And it definitely, it underlines exactly that quote. Um, Yeah, it seems like once prosecutors have gotten involved and yeah, decided that you're a criminal, I mean, just from that point, um, as you're explaining, it's impacting every single thing that's happening to you down the line, perhaps for decades. Um, So shifting a little bit, I was wondering if you could talk about the Domestic Violence Survivors Justice Act, which is a pretty important part of the book, I would say.
1: Yeah. The Domestic Violence Survivors Justice Act is a law that was passed in New York after, I think, 20 years of advocacy by incarcerated individuals, by people who had been directly affected by their inability to have courts consider the impact of domestic violence when determining their sentences. And what it does is two things. It allows the judge, when initially setting a sentence, to consider whether domestic violence was uh, kind of a, a, an integral part of the crime that was committed, and if it was, and if it directly impacted the person's um choices or behavior to depart, as I said, from a a long mandatory minimum sentence. The other thing that it does is allows people who did not have the opportunity to raise uh, their experiences of domestic violence at trial initially to come back to court, to petition the court to to rehear their case or to reconsider their sentence really, not to rehear the whole case, but to reconsider the sentence because that evidence of domestic violence or other forms of intimate partner violence was not considered by the court initially. And so the second half, actually, of what happened um, under the DVSJA was that you had all these people who, so Nikki Adamondo is kind of the front end of the DVSJA, that initial sentencing determination. There are hundreds of people who are incarcerated in New York who are now coming back into court to say, no one ever considered evidence of domestic violence or other forms of violence at the time that I was originally sentenced. And they should have because here's how it affected me. Here's how it affected the case itself. And people are being released as a result of that. Not as many as we would like and not as quickly as we would like. But it is a tool that we can use to get judges to reconsider long sentences. um, And it's starting to have a little purchase. It's interesting because there's a similar law in Illinois that hasn't had a similar impact. And so It's interesting to try to figure out why that is, and I'm not sure anyone knows, but I do know that a number of states, including Oregon actually right now, are considering domestic violence survivors justice acts of their own. So very much an idea that people are pushing in terms of second look
0: uh, sentencing. Awesome. Thank you. Um, So I wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, you were saying that this, this act actually came out of like advocacy by incarcerated people, which is, I think, really phenomenal. And and they are the voices that we should be listening to when we're thinking about solutions to these problems. Um, but I, I would like to talk about, like, you know, because you chart the, the conditions of prisons, right? Um, and, and how they're so impactful, I mean, to everybody who's incarcerated, I imagine, but particularly to victims of gender-based violence. Um, and so if you could sort of um, extrapolate that a little bit. Prison
1: is a trauma-inducing institution. And when you inflict further trauma on people who have already been traumatized, it's not at all surprising that the results are pretty horrific. The noises of prison, it's a loud place. The kind of sensory assault of prison, the inability to ever be alone or to have any privacy that's just kind of a base level. And then you start to build in things like strip searches, which are essentially a form of state-sanctioned rape of people who have been raped and violated in numerous different ways. You have to be strip searched. If you want to see your loved ones, you have to be strip searched. The most ridiculous thing I ever heard was that uh, when, during the pandemic, when people were doing video visits, Tracy McCarter wrote about how during a video visit she was required to be strip searched. I mean, to what end could that possibly have been. Um, the kind of u- regular humiliation and degradation that's practiced by many correctional officers physical abuse, sexual abuse, verbal abuse, emotional abuse. Uh, I have a friend, Juanita Harris, who's been incarcerated in Texas um, and she's been held in segregation for almost eight years now, probably more than eight years now. And she talked about in a piece that we wrote together a woman who recognized the cologne that one of the guards was wearing because it was the cologne that her abusive partner had worn and it was really triggering for her. And somehow the other correctional officers found out about this and they sprayed it all over her mattress. Right. So just the the petty cruelties, you know, and they and things range from, you know, that kind of Othering and horrible language and dehumanizing to rape and sexual assault and murder. And it's kind of everything in between. Healthcare in prison is substandard. Mental healthcare is almost non existent. Reproductive healthcare is substandard and in some cases terrifying. Uh, Healthcare for trans and gender non conforming folks, particularly folks who need hormones or other kinds of things. Healthcare for aging incarcerated people, which is barely existent. Um, I could go on and on and on about the horror that is prisons. And, you know, we talked a little bit at the beginning about how I came to think about this, these issues differently. You know, the other thing I didn't say and should have said then was the other reason that my views have changed is because I spend time in prisons. Um, so starting 10 years ago, when we started to represent incarcerated women and incarcerated trans women, um, I say that because they're in different facilities, Um, I had not been in prisons on a regular basis, and I don't know how someone can go into prison on a regular basis and not be changed by that. Our prison, as they go, is not as horrible as many. It's kind of a rundown community college with razor wire, though, again, substandard medical care, substandard food, all those things. Um, There are worse prisons to be in, and I don't want anyone to have to live there for longer than... Not actually for no time at all, right? No one should be in that setting, Um, and that seeing that, experiencing that was the kind of the final piece of what made me an abolitionist, and I think works
0: that way for many of my students too. Yeah, that makes sense. So I think you've sort of um, covered this a bit in in this last response, but yeah, you know, I do want to point out that you say quite explicitly that prison is gender-based violence, right? Um, is there anything else that you want to, that's such an important point. So if there's anything else that you want to point to or discuss about that, I want to make sure that we have the opportunity.
1: Strip searches are rape. The kind of emotional and verbal and psychological abuse that correctional officers use mirrors the kind of violence that many of my clients experienced in their homes. Um, Risha Meadows, um, who was a 14-year-old who was convicted, well, in the juvenile system found responsible for killing her father, said this about juvenile detention, said, I recognize this. This is what I was living with at home. And many of my clients say the same thing, that prison replicates the violence that they experienced on the streets and in their homes. Um, And so... I can't not see it as a form of gender-based violence. Yeah, that makes sense.
0: Um, so moving on, you know, towards the end of the book, you, d- you talk about um, some reforms and how, you know, that have been aimed, I think, at, at trying to like eliminate or mitigate some of this violence, right? Um, that's inherent in the carceral system. Um, these reforms and, and how they've sort of failed to work Um, And so I'd love to hear more from you about that, but especially these reforms that we're hearing about now about like gender responsive um, and or like trauma informed programming in incidents. Yeah. So what you
1: can't see because this is a podcast is that I'm rolling my eyes, Um, (laughs) but critical resistance talks about reformist reforms versus non-reformist reforms. Reformist reforms are those things that kind of tinker around the edges of the criminal legal system, um, but don't fundamentally challenge the legitimacy of that system or dismantle it in any way. And there are all kinds of reforms like that. And certainly gender responsive trauma informed prisons are one of them. This is probably the thing that makes me the angriest in, in this category of things. Um, and particularly when you see kind of strong feminist voices um, like Gloria Steinem saying, "Oh, yeah, we want a gender-informed prison. No, we don't, because a prison can never be truly gender-informed." Why is it that we're anyway? Um, so what what people mean by gender-informed prisons is often, "Oh, they offer cosmetology classes. <laughs> oh, they teach you know t- traditionally gendered skills," or uh, in some uh, gender responsive prisons—you can be caged alongside your child, um, and have your child live in the cage with you for some period of time. Then, in terms of trauma informed, you can't make a trauma inducing institution trauma informed. It just can't work that way. It's it's an oxymoron. Um, and so that's the one that does make me the angriest. But you see lots of tinkering around the edges through diversion programs that still have people in the criminal legal system um, through um, kind of the human trafficking intervention courts and other kinds of specialized courts that purport to be helping courts but require you to be a criminal defendant before you're entitled to any kind of help you know anything that is that continues to invest money and authority in the criminal legal system can be used to hurt people no matter what its intention was
0: originally yeah i really appreciated this This discussion, although it made me want to rip my hair out when I was reading it because it's like, yeah, how exactly do you have a trauma informed like trauma factory? That's, I think, the question that comes to my mind or like, if prisons are, are like gender informed or trauma informed, like what do they do with that information? Right, <laughs> To me, is probably terrifying um, what the answer to that would be. Um, so to move on to, you know, um, brighter topics, <laughs> um, you know, ultimately this book is making a case for abolition feminism. So you know, if you could define um, abolition feminism, talk about, you know, what are the demands of abolition feminism and why is it that, you know, you, ch- you choose to end the book with this sort of concept in this yeah this argument?
1: Yeah, abolition feminism is a feminism that rejects the use of the carceral system to address gender based violence and other kinds of similar problems. It's a, a feminism that looks at what we've wrought um, over the last 40 years and says, yeah, no, this was a bad idea. Um, And, you know, again, there were women of color feminists saying that for the last 40 years. Um, Some of us took a lot longer to catch on. Um, But essentially, it is a response to the idea that... Carceral feminism is an appropriate intervention, but it's also more than that. Um, It's more than just the counter to carceral feminism. It is also in its own right a way of thinking about how we give people the things that they need to live and to thrive um, without investing all of our resources and all of our time and attention in the criminal legal system, but instead shifting that into other, into community, into people, into the things that people truly need. And- I think it's important to understand that abolition has to be necessarily a process of building as well as dismantling. So you hear people talk about defund and you hear people talk about kind of breaking down the prison system. And for many people, the very natural next question is, but but what will be in its place? That's kind of, I think, the wrong order of operations. I think the right order of operations is when we give people the things that they need, when we are giving them mental health care and physical health care and safe places to live and good food to eat and safety in their communities and Transportation and jobs that actually pay a living wage, and all of the things that people need. What the data shows us about violence is that it will decrease. And so, when people have what they need, and we've seen then what the scope of the problem then looks like, then we can say, okay, now we know what the scope of the problem really is in a world where people have the things that they need, and we can figure out what that response looks like. I tend to steal from Mariam Kaba here, as I said earlier. And that idea that we don't have to know right now, but we do have to build first. We can't dismantle without building first. And so thinking about, right, how do we take some of what is funding, you know, the $180 billion that's going into police and to uh, incarceration every year and just shift it into the things that people need? And how do we start to make that change, right, that just transformation um, that we need Then we can figure out what goes in its place. So that's the work that I think we need to be doing. And I do it in the context of gender-based violence because that's the thing I know about and the thing that I care the most about in the context of criminalized survivors. But I also take Ruth Wilson Gilmore's words to heart that we can't just do it for criminalized survivors because – One, if you look at the rates, everybody's a criminalized survivor. Rates of trauma among incarcerated people across the board are ridiculously high. Stealing, again, from Danielle Sered, very few of us come to violence for the first time as perpetrators. Most of us come to violence for the first time as victims. So almost everybody's a criminalized survivor. It doesn't make sense to distinguish kind of for that reason. But it also, um, what Ruth Wilson Gilmore has argued is if you start creating classes of deserving and undeserving people... There will always be some people who get left out there. And that can't be what happens in an abolitionist world. So I don't believe in exceptionalism. I do believe in abolition for everyone. And so that's part of the argument that I make at the end of the book as well. But I I do want to say, if you're not ready to go there, if you're not quite ready to get to abolition, there are so many things that we can do along the way that dismantle parts of the carceral system that make it less harmful to people um, that really are non-reformist reforms that you can get behind even if you can't get all the way to abolition. Not you specifically, but one.
0: (laughs) Yes, I think that's a great point. Um, Thank you so much for that. So I have a final question. It was something I was thinking about while I was reading um, the book. Um, so I'm wondering about your thoughts on this current, you know, these waves of, um, anti-trans violence, essentially, right. Criminalizing, um, criminalizing transness and criminalizing access to trans healthcare. Um, and I I see this very clearly as state enacted gender-based violence, uh, particularly on trans children. Um, and it will, you know, it's also going to, um, it's going to leave people, trans people really vulnerable to criminalization I think when they try to seek the the care that they need um, when they are dealing with all of the anger and frustration and hopelessness and abandonment of not having access to the things that they need um, and I think this is like really <laughs> disturbing in its own right but then when I was reading about this idea of like you know uh, prisons for quote unquote gender expansive people it becomes like so much more insidious right um, and so, we have this like potential and motivation for more incarceration and then these calls for reform that are actually like, I mean, if you build them, they will come right. Like if we build these prisons, we will fill them. Um, anyways, that's my opinion. So, but I was just wondering, you know, cause I think that in this present moment, when we see these two sort of movements uh, converging um, it, it to me, it makes like sort of the urgency of this argument that you're making even more sort of clear. Um so yeah if you if you would like to speak about that for for a minute or so um, I would really appreciate hearing your thoughts about it.
1: So agree 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 with all of that. One the more prisons we build the more that we'll fill. That's been true historically it will continue to be true. The idea of I should have said when we were talking about kind of gender informed prisons there is another kind of gender informed prison which is a prison that's just for trans folks which is deeply problematic in its own right right because if you if you have this idea that Um, The way to keep trans folks safe is to separate them out, right? We will start to have kind of full out ghettos of trans folks. And the the treatment of trans folks in prisons by correctional officers is so unbelievably, appallingly bad, um, abusive, horrific, that I cannot imagine what a trans folks specific prison will inflict on people. But I also completely agree with you that the more repressive the laws are around gender, the more likely we are to see the folks who are most vulnerable come into the system. So when we criminalized, really started to criminalize intimate partner violence, we saw victims of violence coming into the system in great numbers. Um, When we start to criminalize or cut off people's access to the things that they need to gender responsive healthcare, to gender responsive services, you will drive people to get those things however they can. And when that happens and they are criminalized, they will be a part of the system that has no capacity to treat them in any way um, that is affirming, that is healthy, that is kind of any of the things that we would want for any of our own children. Um, and so I absolutely agree with you 100%. You'll also see you know, more kids who feel the need to leave their homes um, and wind up doing survival sex work or other kinds of things that land them in the system, a system that has no patience for whatever it is that they need um, and no ability to provide them with what they need. So yeah, it, it, it's... The more repressive we are about gender kind of in any iteration, the more likely we are to see the negative consequences coming in through the criminal legal system. And so again, if you didn't have that system. The only way to guarantee that survivors of violence aren't criminalized is to not have a criminal legal system. Because as long as actors within that system have discretion to decide who should benefit and who should be burdened by it, we will always have criminalized survivors. And so as long as that system exists, it will continue to do the damage that it does.
0: Thank you so much. Um, I've really appreciated this conversation and and really appreciated um, reading your book. So thank you so much for the work and and for your time today. Thank you so
1: much for having me. I appreciate it.